Welcome to Sounds Amazing from Plymouth Sound National Marine Park, your guide to everything happening in, on, under and around Plymouth Sound. Presented by Elaine Hayes. Hello and welcome to Plymouth Sound National Marine Park Sounds Amazing. This morning I have the privilege of having the leader of the council, Councillor Tudor Evans, with me, who really needs no introduction since he is not just the leader of the council but has been a resident of Plymouth for many, many years. And today I want to talk to Tudor about the background to National Marine Park, how he and other people from the city decided that this was the right place and the right time to start the process of declaring a national marine park and also just to get a little bit underneath what's brought it on in the first place why Judy thinks this is such a fantastic idea and what his secret hopes and ambitions and maybe a few of his fears are around how we're actually going to develop the national marine park morning hello Judy. how are you i'm all right actually this is great i always find this podcast in business quite challenging because you've got to say what's on your mind but remember that you're not just having a conversation with the person in the room, that it's other people listening. So you've got to be careful, haven't you? I'll be as open and honest as it's possible to be without leaving any hostages to fortune in the room. That sounds absolutely perfect. I think really I want to learn a little bit more about you. Oh, yeah. And what makes you tick. And through that, then we'll get on to the National Marine Park stuff. So I thought we'd start with something that's really your comfort zone. Tell us about young Tudor and growing up in Wales and Mm. how you develop your love of the sea. We were a long way from the sea. We were on the edge of the Brecon Beacons Mm -hmm. at the top end of Steel and Coal Town. Mm -hmm. We used to come down here on holiday. I'm trying to remember where we went, you know. We had Minad, we went. Uh We went to Bude one year. We went to Torbay one year, and then one year we came to Plymouth. How old do you think you were then? I was probably seven or eight. I remember going up Smeaton's Tower with my Auntie Glenn. All right. Because my mother wouldn't go up because it was too high. (laughs) As I've got older, I've gained a fear of heights. But I didn't have it then, and uh, I still remember it now. I mean, you know, that first visit and going up Smeaton's Tower was just incredible, and I can't remember anything else about that holiday. Right. But I do remember that very clearly. I also remember going in a terrible calf in Torquay one year as well, but we won't talk about that <laughs> Let's now. gloss over that for the time being. You got to spend your childhood on beaches and round the sea, and I was the same. I was very, very lucky in that way. Yeah. What was it about the sea that made you feel that you needed to be near it in order to just be able to live well for yourself? That's the thing, in it? It's so different. Mm. If you live in a sort of landlocked area... And I did for the first 18 years of my life, but I've lived in Plymouth since I was 18. So it's kind of getting more and more difficult to remember a time when I didn't have the sea. Every day I could see it and hear it. And, you know, it's difficult to say, you know, I can retrofit some feelings, but it wouldn't be right. I just liked the sand and the sea and the smell and... I like the wildlife and I like just the whole thing, really. It was just an adventure, wasn't it? You know, because it's an interesting environment, tides and beaches and stuff and that, you know, rock pools. and It's very different and it's ever-changing, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's right. When you're in a landlocked landscape, you know, you can't see the trees growing very quickly, you know what I mean? No, true. Whereas at the seaside, you can see something probably every day, something's different. Mm. We loved our beach holidays, me and my sister, you know, and we've always enjoyed it. She lives now 
down in West Wales on the estuary, right in the Lucker estuary. And again, that intertidal stuff, that estuary thing is really important to her and her family, you know. I find myself incredibly lucky living here because obviously you've got the marine park and you've got the tamer and you've got the sound, but you've also got this huge treasury of opportunities at the coast mm. where we live very close to us. And I know it's like a lot of families don't have that opportunity of getting out and about. Again, you know, we got a car, so we, we can do it. We've been on the bus a few times to do it as well. We can get out and about, and we are incredibly lucky. And, of course, living in Plymouth, we don't have to pay sky-high prices to stay and enjoy it, do we? We yeah. can just pop there for the day or even for the afternoon. It's lovely. Yeah, we're very, very lucky. I mean, as a kid, we had a caravan by the coast. So we used to commute down and all my childhood memories, pebbles, not sand, being Sussex coast. So lots of pebbles, but lots of rock pools and scouting out peeler crabs for me dad for his fishing and things like that. So all of my best memories are actually around beaches. And when I lived in the Midlands for a while, I used to spend every weekend commuting to a beach just to get back to the sea. And you're right, we are very, very lucky because we get that opportunity. My other half family basically had a caravan down Stoke Beach mm-hmm. in the old co-op site there and her granddad had a caravan her mum and dad had a caravan and I think it was auntie they used to just pack the car up on the last day of school because both the mum and dad were teachers and then they used to pack everything into the van and go down for six weeks and then come back yeah. the day before school started. Yeah. And I mean, what a fantastic opportunity that is, being in the sea every day and around. So, you know, our family's always valued that. Our youngest has now got a caravan down there and continues that family tradition. And it's really exceptionally important to her as well. And I think what's really interesting is that we're very lucky. It's a real privilege to be able to go to the sea when you want to be able to do it. I think that's what sort of fires your desire to help and support others to be able to do the same because you know how good it was for you and how good it is for your kids and your grandkids. And you just think, why would I not want that for everybody who lives in Plymouth? In fact, anybody who lives anywhere. Yeah. Well, I came here to live when I came down to the Polytech to study and I knew Plymouth from that visit I made when I was a little kid, you know. Um, Did that make you choose Plymouth to it, do your degree, it, or was it more...? No, as usual, there's a happy chapter of accidents, including failure and all of that, but I'll not go into that in too many details. But I'm really glad that I got to do environmental science at Plymouth. It was the second year of the course ever, so it was sort of pioneering stuff mm-hmm. back in the day. So I was really pleased with the course. I'm really pleased with the location. It's really an uh, amazing place. I mean, it's slightly different now because it was a polytech. Yes. And I did a week's field trip in Derbyshire, right. in the Hope Valley, right? My brother-in-law went and studied as a mature student at the university and did the environmental science course. And he went to Southeast Asia for a week. <laughs> so there's a slight difference there between polytechnic and university education, I think. But I had a good time in the Hope Valley. Anyway, all I would say is it's a fantastic place to work, to live, 
some rows of family and the marine park kind of thing is really important because we did a piece of work back in the early 2000s we got in a guy to help us reimagine the city and do a master plan for the city at the time there's a guy called david mackie yeah who was an internationally renowned architect he designed the barcelona olympic village for one of his major triumphs. And his partner in crime was, well, not in crime, I mean, it was a wonderful <laughs> piece of work, Roger Zalogovich. And they came up with this master plan and their observation about Plymouth. First thing that struck them was Jenny Cliff and Rain. Yep. They said they were like two arms yes. sort of reaching out and welcoming. Yeah. Right? It struck them as the geography or the geomorphology actually dictated the form. And they also concluded that Plymouth was a city that had turned its back on the sea. You say that a lot. I hear you say that Well, it a lot. struck me as so accurate at yes. that time, right? Because if you think about it, all the stuff, we were all talking about links to London and we were all talking about links to everywhere else. And, we and looking to Dartmoor. And looking that way, land, right? And the hoe, I mean, people went to the hoe, but there wasn't much on there other than go and have a look and then go oh, somewhere else, go back to the Barbican or somewhere. We didn't have a plan for exploitation. So the Mackey report gave us, I think, a real framework to start talking again. So I use this a lot. I talk about turning the city around in every sense of the word, remembering why we were here in the first place, 260,000 people, why are you here? Well, we're here for the dockyard and the sea, obviously. Fast access to open water and the ocean, better than anywhere. And this tradition, going way back, three, 400 years, trade even longer than that, thousands. So it was kind of... I like the metaphor. I like it a lot. I think it works on a number of different levels. And when it comes to cast the National Marine Park, it sort of fitted in that narrative, you know. So if you've got a city that, you know, some people were still deriving their livelihoods from it and it shaped them as people. But for a lot of the population of Plymouth, they hadn't experienced the water, hadn't been on it, in it, didn't care for it very much didn't understand the relationship between their behaviour on land and what effect it had on the sea. And, I mean, you know, we're talking 20-odd years ago now, mind, and I think, like a lot of things on environmental stuff, people have become more and more aware as time goes on. But this narrative still helps us to define what we're trying to do, which is to rediscover our love for the sea in Plymouth. People love the sea when they go on holiday abroad, on. They love it when they go to Cornwall and they love it when they go to other places. But what we want them to do is love their own backyard. Yeah, I think that's so important. But I also think it's really easy to see. I mean, I'm very lucky. I remember Plymouth from when my dad lived here. Mm. And I can very much relate to the come up on the home, nothing happens, go away because he lived up in Mutley. Mm. So we didn't actually come to the Hoe very often because my play part was the local cemetery and around there. So that's where we used to go. And actually, it didn't feel like a city next to the sea. Mm. 
And I think there's still more work to do around that. I think there's still a lot we can do to really make that welcome and make the centre of the city the gateway down to the sea. Yeah. And I know you've got loads of plans for that, which is super important. You've talked about why the sea matters to you, I think, but I think we should talk about national marine parks. Everybody knows what a national park is. So I suppose my first question to you, because I get asked it all the time, as you know, is, you know, what is a national marine park to you? Well, that's really good. I mean, we're in a good place, aren't we? Because, like, worldwide, they've got national marine parks everywhere, right? They have. I mean, I went to one when I was in Mexico on holiday. Yeah, I know. I feel very chuffed about this. And it was like, you know, a bit of it was commercial and then there'd be a bit of mangrove Mm -hmm. stuff and then you'd go out and see all of that. You know, I've seen that in operation. But there's others that are just massive conservation areas, aren't there? And then there's other things. Anyway, the point is we didn't have anything here. And, I mean, Luke Pollard, the MP sort of had this in his manifesto in 2017 that he was going to create one. I don't know how he thought he would do that without the council, but that's why I put it in our manifesto because I liked what it was all about. I mean, him and Martin Atrill. Yes, from the university. Yeah. Well, Martin had been, like, really big in advocacy for this. But what it always needs is politicians to pick it up and run with it, right? So Luke picked up and run with it. I picked up and run with it. And... I think everybody on the council is kind of bought into the idea because they can understand exactly what it might mean for Plymouth. Mm. Now, the beauty of it, making your own rules is you haven't actually got to follow a particular pattern. In fact, we have said to the government, if we can do it here, we can do it anywhere in the UK, yes. right? I mean, if you think about what we've got here, we've got, like, wild swimmers, mm-hmm. we've got paddle boarders, We've got nuclear submarines. Yep, there's one or two of them. We've got wildlife, thousand species. Yep. We've got fishers. We've got all this variety of conflicts in here. Oh, and science. Yes. So if we can make it a rule book here, anywhere in the UK, there's nobody can say it's too difficult. And I couldn't support that more. Yeah. I think Plymouth Sound is a very busy, complex place and space. Yeah. And I know you think it's easier without a rule book, but sitting in my shoes is quite hard without a rule book. But, but. I know, but we have got some rules, haven't we? I yes. mean, you know, we've got marine protected areas, haven't we? You know, we've got spaces that you can't fish. You've got spaces you mustn't land. You've got all of these sort of rules around. You've got the stewardship of, obviously, the King's Harbour Master. Yes. And the trust port of the Catwater. So we've got lots of rules, actually. I mean, when I say we haven't got any rules, we haven't got any rules from the marine part. Yes. as such. So we make our own. Now, is it a national park on the sea? Well, it could be, but they've got legislation behind them. They've got boundaries well-defined. They've got tax powers and all of those things. And we're not asking for those at the moment. You know, we don't need them in a sense because we have those protections for the wildlife. If the Navy want to come through, they'll come through because they're defending the realm. So there's no conflict there. And, you know, the commercial developments and the commercial aspects of this are managed very well by the Trust Port and the King's Harbour Master. So we're in the space where we're actually just, I don't know, managing the concept at the moment, right? I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to define the concept for a UK audience, right? And it'll be ours. So it won't be Mexico's. There won't be... You know, crazy stuff I saw in Mexico, and I'd like to bring it here, but I can't talk to you about it now because it's too mad. <laughs> but 
we've got an opportunity to make it our own, as Louis Walsh might say. Yeah. Okay. It works for us and it'll work anywhere. And it's about conservation. Yes. It's about the environment in every sense of the word. It's about climate. It's about water quality and ocean recovery. It's about a sense of belonging. So it's about what we call marine citizenship. We're starting to try and get to grips with the definition of that and how that works for us. But it's that thing around birthright yes. and stuff. It manifests itself in a load of different ways. We want more people to swim, right, so they can enjoy it. We want more parents who didn't learn to swim to be able to learn to swim so their kids can go and swim, right? As a generational thing, working backwards. We also got to deal with people who are shy to go in the water, availability of swimming kit, all of that stuff, wetsuits, you know, so they can go when they want to go. There's so much to it. And then you've got this thing around, you know, trying to put more seagrass back in. Because, like, seagrass really important, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, everybody talks about the rainforest. Yeah, the rainforest is very important. But actually, seagrass absorbs more CO2 than trees do. Yes. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, not a lot of people know that. Not enough people know that. I think it's one of the things that we know is really hard about the sea is the fact that because you can't see it, because you can't see what's there, Mm. that makes it that much harder for people to understand and to relate to. And sometimes things happen like we get a whole load of jellyfish coming in and everybody doesn't want to go anywhere near the sea because it's full of jellyfish. And I kind of get that too because I'm not great at swimming in great hordes of jellyfish. It's not the best experience. But we really need to help people better understand the amazingness of Plymouth Sounds that they can want to look after it. But our grandkids, when they see the jellies come in, they make a beeline for them. I mean, not to get in with them, but actually go and see them. Yes. Because it's like alien monsters coming and see you, isn't it? You know what I mean? And then there's other places, you know, that you can enjoy. You know, I love the swans when they're about. That's a fantastic thing. Mm. Uh, in Sutton Harbour, the swans are magnificent. Or you're having something to eat at the harbour side or something. You know, sofas and places like that. It's brilliant. And then you've got that old business going on with what lies beneath. Yeah. And I love going to the National Marine Aquarium, right? Because I love that Eddystone Reef. Yes. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Those creatures are just out there. I know they're indoors, but that's what we've got. And people have no idea. And we did a thing a couple of years ago where we actually took the sea to the parks, right? Well, we're going to do a bit more of that in, we in due course. Uh, we perhaps we'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah, we can. Doing this quiz about whether you thought this was a tropical fish or whether you thought this was a good old British fish, right? <laughs> Swimming around in Plymouth Sound. And, you know, you just didn't know. You know, it was some of the more colourful variety. We're actually not tropical, but actually live here next door to us, right? So the opportunity to share what lies beneath is very important as well. My feeling is that if people could see just how much life is there, they would give even more of monkeys about it than they do. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I talk to people all the time. It's part of my job. They say, oh, well, you know, when you go to the Mediterranean, they have seahorses for example, and you say, we have seahorses, and they nearly fall over. And then they look at you as if to say, no, no, we don't have seahorses, don't talk nonsense. And people just don't know. And we just need to get so much better about sharing that wonder and just how special and important that is. I think this is part of a pattern of behaviour of Plymouth, right? 
one of the things I do a lot when I go to London is I boast about Plymouth all the time. Till people are tired of me doing it. But what I discovered a while ago is nobody else is going to do it for us but us, right? And if you think about what we've got here, we've got so much wonder here in this city, right? We've got things that nobody else has got. I know everybody goes, oh, Exodus got Ikea. Oh, lovely. Well, Exodus where we keep our Ikea so it doesn't clod up Plymouth, right? But, I mean, you know, we've got the Royal William Yard. We've got Plymouth Hoe. We've got Jenny Cliff, we've got the Breakwater, we've got Mount Edgecombe Park, which we co-own with Cornwall. We've got some real wonders here. And we've got Plymouth Sound and all its wonder. I know when people take things for granted and they don't see them anymore because they're there every day, but actually what I always try and do with visitors is I always try and take them to Plymouth Hoe and look out. I say, have you got an island in your city, have you? Have you got a structure that was so big, it's almost two-thirds of the amount of stone in it as the pyramids of Giza? Because that's the breakwater. Mm. Two-thirds of the amount of stone. And have you got a lighthouse that they had to move onto the hoe in well, order to protect it? Oh, you no, know what I mean? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it's all this fabulousness. Yes. But as I say, the prize now is making sure that people realise how fabulous the marine park is, how fabulous the collection of creatures and plants that we've got there is. I mean, there was the other one, wasn't it? You know, we got the Queen's Forest. Yeah, the, the Queen's National... Green Canopy Award, right, yeah, for right. kelp, yeah. We didn't put trees up, we put kelp in. Yeah. And I mean, I think that makes us really special, really unique, thinking outside the box, good old Plymouth, pioneering there, even underwater. And it's really important, kelp. Kelp's, you know, a really, really important part of the ecosystem. And so, you know, it's vital that things like that are seen about and protected. I mean, like I say, people, they only notice seaweed when they're swimming through it. Or Or it's wrapped around the legs. Yeah. And then you think, yeah, but imagine what that forest is like out there. Yeah. And now it's time for H2O. I didn't know that. Plymouth Gin travelled around the globe on Royal Navy ships. Navy Strength Gin was given its name due to its high alcohol content, which means that even if the gin is spilt on gunpowder, the powder can still be lit. Sir Francis Drake circumnavigated the globe in 1577, starting from Plymouth. It took him three years, sailing against tides and winds. The statue commemorating this voyage can be found on Plymouth Hoe. Many of the surviving crew of RMS Titanic were landed at Plymouth's Mill Bay docks on their return from America. They had to give witness statements to the Board of Trade before being allowed to leave the docks for their homes. You can find out more about Plymouth Sound Marine Park and Plymouth's famous sailors, adventurers and attractions at The Box. Sounds amazing from Plymouth Sound National Marine Park. Follow us on X, Facebook and Instagram. Get in touch with questions and comments at PlymouthSoundNationalMarinePark.com So this is going to be a really hard question for you, Tudor, but if I had to nail your feet to the floor, what is your favourite place that's in the National Marine Park? And more importantly, why? (laughs) 
Well, okay, if I had to choose... I'd probably let you have a second if you absolutely twisted my arm, but two is the max. Well, I'm going to give you my absolute total favourite place, right, which is the tunnel in the wall at Royal William Yard. Okay. You use that as your backdrop on all our meetings. Yeah, yeah. When Urban Splash reopened that passage, Mm -hmm. right there, you stand there in Firestone Bay. If you stand there during the day, you can see Drake's Island... You could see the ships coming back and forth and you could imagine what it would have been like when Royal William Yard was first built, driving those cattle in through that tunnel, right? You can do all of that. And you can see people swim in and you can see people paddleboarding and it's a fantastic spot. At night, you've got the winking lights of the boys, but then you've got this absolute, to use a famous phrase, Bible black sky where you can see the stars and it's just a fantastic spot and hear the waves lapping on the rocks of Firestone Bay. It's a fantastic spot. Mm. I've got loads of others, though. You know, <laughs> you know, we go down to Batten Bay with the family. You know, the kids love to play there. There's rock pools there. The swimming's a bit challenging down there, but nevertheless, and it was a beach that a lot of Plymouth people didn't use for a long time because it was... RAF Mm. land and MOD land up until the 90s. So there's not a great tradition for certain generation of people of going there. Mm. But you see more and more families going there these days. And we've got plans, as you know, for the exploding the opportunities of the peninsula at Mount Patton. I'm so excited about all the things we're going to do there. So, you know, I mean, you're talking about favourite places, you know. I mean, I do like going up to the Norman Tower. As I keep on saying to the people, you know, Plymouth have got so much history, they don't know what to do with it. Who has a Norman Tower? We do. Yeah. Who doesn't light it up very well? That's us. Oh, don't. (laughs) Who doesn't have people being able to get in there very often? That's us. I mean, if it was any town in Cornwall and they had a Norman Tower, you can bet your life there'd be a Cornish flag on the top of it and there'd be lighting and there'd probably be people selling ice cream outside it. And a festival. Probably. To boot. So we don't do that here. We like to keep things a bit quiet, don't we? Keep them to ourselves. One of the things we're going to be doing is changing that. And it's part of our bid to the lottery. We may talk about that towards the end. That's another spot. And then there's all sorts of other random spots. Driving to Tamerton Folia, you know, you turn off there and you can go into all the way through to the woods and then you get to the end of the woods and then there's that, is it 13 Arch Railway Bridge over the Tamer? Yeah, beautiful. uh, You know, I mean, these little places which, you know, I mean, you're just like, wow, when you first go there, you just, well, how do I not know about this? And a lot of people do know about it. Some people, it might be a long time since they've visited, but there's loads of places like that. Mm. A little beach there, tidal beach, now and again, you can have a little play there. I mean, people on jet skis and people on boats know it very well because they're all the time, but, you know, there's not many people. And again, fantastic countryside. So let's talk a little bit about the Horizons project, which we've been working on. Well, you've been involved for a very long time. Tell me about going to pitch in London to get the first round money for the Horizons project. It was like they said it couldn't be done, (laughs) Elaine, right? Because we'd already had a massive award from the lottery for the box. Yep. And I said, do you know what? If you don't try, you'll never know. Don't rule ourselves out. Let's give it a go. 
So we had an excellent team. So I went with Anthony Payne, mm-hmm. the strategic director for Place in Plymouth, City Council, and Kat Deeney. She is really brilliant at pitching for money for all sorts of stuff. And then we had, he didn't come with us, but he wrote my pitch in part with Dave Druffin. Dave Druffin is a genius who works for the council. And we had a couple of sit downs and I just pumped out a stream of consciousness and he turned it into something more usable. So the three of us are sitting there in this room in a posh part. It's in one of those places in London that are called settlements. So they used to do, you know, Profumo. Yes. He worked there when he was doing his penance. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we were in this room and there were all these judges, big long list of seven or eight people, right? And they all had different dimensions that they wanted a sort of question. But we did our pitch, we rehearsed our pitch and we pitched on the basis that the fund we're bidding into was called, like you say, Horizons. Yeah. And I talked about the fact that in Plymouth you have the horizon all the time. But the trouble is with it, it keeps rising up because the sea levels is rising, right? And the reason for that is about we're not caring for the environment. So I did this pitch about Plymouth's history. So, yes, the landscape was important. Heritage Lottery have used to giving you money for buildings, but also this was an opportunity to break new ground. This didn't involve buildings. It could involve buildings, but actually at its heart was the environment, not the built environment, but the natural environment okay it was basically us telling them what they needed to hear about (laughs) their own fund Mm -hmm. right it was a bit cheeky but it worked because it ticked every box that they were after community engagement care for the environment care for the planet care for historic landscape the importance of history in driving behavior change and respect and all of those things, being inclusive, making sure that you were sort of pitching it as widely as you possibly can to get as many people involved as you possibly could. And taking advantage of new stuff, digital platforms. How could you use that? It's not just going along to a building and looking at a picture on the wall and going, wow. How do we take it to people who can't get there? And how do we get them involved and excited? I mean, I enjoyed the pitch. I thought we'd done all right. You know, you come out sometimes, you know, when you go in an exam and something, you come out, oh, I really screwed up that last question, you know. Actually, we came out of there feeling pretty chuffed. Yeah, well, you were right, weren't you? Well, in the end, it proved to be, yeah. I think we did answer the exam question. And as I say, I think we've set the bar quite high now for other people. I'm, you know, sorry about that, but... I don't think anybody will have as unique opportunity as this one to use this money in this way to reach as many people in as many different ways as we will with the Horizons Project. Mm. So, as you know, the lottery will make a decision uh, around about Christmas and it gives us a little bit of time to sort of pause and reflect. Mm. And I'm really interested to know... What are the top three things in your head that subject to lottery saying yes for the money Mm. you would want us to see getting underway as soon as possible? I mean, this might sound a bit crazy when I've just said we pitched for the money and we got it. But there is a two-stage process with all the lottery applications Mm. that we've ever been through. And that's quite right because, you know, it's lottery players' money, isn't it? And it's a lot of money. And it's a lot of money and you want to make sure that you're going to spend it well. But as we've demonstrated with the box, when you give us some money in Plymouth, we do really good things with it. So this will be no different. For me, I think our capital programme is really exciting. Mm -hmm. 
the opportunity to really finish the job on Tinside to make the most of that and restore that first floor and the top for a meeting place of real quality and excitement. With what the, a view! With the best view in Plymouth, really. Best view of the National Marine Park. It's amazing. I love it. It's incredible. But there's two other... Pro- we just talked about Mountbatten. Yes. You know, getting that sorted. Yep. Getting the Water Sports Centre, which has been, you know, not really had as much investment as it could. So we're going to change things around there quite a bit. Make it a real destination all year round, actually, because it'll be a really nice place to eat there. Um, there'll be a wonderful walkway around that part of the Plym and onto the peninsula of Mountbatten and the Tower, of course. And I'm really excited that what we'll also be able to do is make it accessible for everyone. Yeah. Because there's so many places. I mean, Plymouth is great, but when you look at how we get into the sea and so on, Mm. there's a lot of steps involved in our world. And it's just so exciting to be able to go, actually, let's make places and spaces where anyone and everyone can get into the sea, can get close to the water, even if it's just to do what, as you said, what you like to do is just watching the water and hearing it splash against the rocks. If you can't Mm. actually get there... You know, how will you experience that wonder and amazement? And I'm really excited about how much better access we're going to be able to provide. I think that's really important. Navigating your way around the Marine Park is going to be important as well. Yes. So better signage and interpretation so that people can understand what it is we've got here. You know, I mean, we did it, they've gone back to the box again. Sorry you keep mentioning it, but, you know, we got that and that film, which basically shows you there's 600 shipwrecks on the floor of Plymouth Sound. Mm. And, I mean, it freaks people out because you can't see any of them, can you? Nope. None happened after the Dutton went down because mm. the breakwater was there. Yes. So for 200 years we hadn't had any. Yep. It's incredible, the carnage down there, but actually the opportunity for marine life that's down there as well, right? And I'm really excited about being able to share that with people digitally, as you said, and we'll get some really good footage and that will be really good fun and people start to understand that they're not just quietly decomposing wrecks, they're actually the home to huge great conger eels who'll come darting out at you the minute you get too close. They'll be covered in barnacles, which are tiny little creatures that pull stuff out of the sea and their own ecosystem in their own right. And just being able to share that would just be really amazing. I'm so excited about some of that. It is great. And like you say, never been done anywhere before. No. We want to see the kids in school excited about it. We want to see more access for kids coming to the seaside in their own backyard because there's too many of them have been. Yep. So we've got to make sure that, you know, we do something about that. That's really important. And also, you know, obviously the opportunity for business, tourism, industry. You know, because, like, when you're trying to flog a place to industry... Yeah, you've got to make sure you've got the premises right. You've got to have the connectivity right. You've got to have grants and incentives, but you've also got to have livability. And, you know, again, oh, you've got a National Marine Park is a good selling point when you're trying to drag somebody's capital investment from one side of the world to the other or even one part of the country. And the UK's only National Marine Park. Indeed. When Dr Potts came in to see the council, Johningham, my predecessor and me, all those years ago, to talk about this bonkers idea he had for the National Marine Aquarium, Mm. you know. Why is it the National Marine Aquarium? Because we say it is, right? (laughs) So that was the same thing with this. 
are we you the National Rings Park? Mm. Or we are. There aren't any others, are there? Mm. No. Therefore, we are it, aren't we? Aren't we first? Mm. I said that at a conference with a number of key ocean stakeholders around. And I was really a statement of intent at that stage. So we had like a ceremony on the hoe to which not many members of the public actually came. But I think that's because they didn't really understand what we were about here. And I had a lot of nervous people around, it's fair to say. They give this thing, they called it a declaration of intent. Yes, something changed. Well, you know, the point is, if you don't ask, you don't get, right? So... Yes, we intend to have a national marine park, but actually I'm declaring it today, right? From now on it is. Why do I say that? Because there aren't any rules. Why do I say that? Because government basically haven't got any legislation. Yep. And I said, can we have one? If we had one, would you oppose it? And they said no, which is as good as saying, get on with it, isn't it, as you can get. And what's the point in having a declaration of intent? You may as well not have a declaration at all as have a declaration of intent. So I said, no, let's just do it. We are it now. Thank you. From today, henceforth, we are it. And so we are. You know, there are a number of places around the country that might be able to be, but they'll never be the first and they'll never be the national one because we are. And they'll never be as special as Plymouth Sand. Well, that's right. Arguably, in, in my view. People can make all sorts of claims, can't they? Mm. But, I mean... Like you say, if you just look at the variety of activity, the south coast, I mean, you know, for my northern sisters and brothers, right, they might not like to hear this, but actually most of the busyness in the sea is on the south coast of England is where it's actually at. It's where the dredging is, it's where the gravel is, it's where the shipping lanes are, it's where loads of stuff going on. Curiously, the Marine Management Organisation are in Newcastle where nothing really much happens, but they will leave that go for a minute. We've got so much going on here. And, of course, Plymouth is particularly important because it's the gateway to the Atlantic Ocean. It's been important for hundreds of years for that reason. I just think you'd have our job coming up with a place that had more going for it than Plymouth in this particular space, wouldn't you? I think so. You'd have to be making things up, I think. Mm. But we don't. Our problem is always underselling what we've got. That's our problem. So we've got to get more arrogant, I think, certainly more confident and more boastful. So if I asked you to shut your eyes now and look ahead 20 years, and you're looking at Plymouth Sound, what would be different? Well, it'd be difficult to say because the sea might be a bit higher than it was, so we'll probably have had a bit more flood prevention mm -hmm. measures put in around the city, I'd be honest. That would probably be needed. Even if we stop everything today, we're still dealing with climate change and the consequences of that. Would I see more species in the sound? Well, if I went diving, yeah. But there would be some obvious signs. There'd be people on top of the water. What I want to see is I want to see more people back in and on the water or around it. I want to see that happen more often. I want to see competitions on the water. We love buildings like Tinsley being popular. I'd like to see people loving the beach I'd like to see people coming up to the rangers and asking them questions, you know. Basically, 
more people just making for the water again. The other thing is we've got some amazing marine science here, right? Somebody told me we've got the highest concentration of marine scientists anywhere in the country. I don't know if that's right. I've heard it a lot. So why aren't we famous for that? Mm. I mean, we've got Plymouth Marine Laboratory, which is being sampling the water for a 100 years uninterrupted. Mm. And they're really important globally, aren't they? But it helps us understand what's happening. Yeah. I mean, the main thing is you can't see it. It'll be in the attitude of mind. It'll be in the way that people in 20 years who are just being born now will understand that the water's for them, it's theirs, they've got to look after it, and they won't be behaving in such a way that compromises the quality of what we've got there. I just think it's so important that everybody will love it and we can share it with everyone, and they'll just want to be in on and around it. That's right. And, you know, like you say, you see the pictures of Plymouth from, like, back 100 years ago and you see the flocks of people there. I mean, you know, there were 250,000 people around the whole of the bowl of Plymouth Sound when Sir Francis Chichester returned from his round-the-world voyage. I mean, I doubt if we'll see crowds like that ever again. I mean, we do get... 40 or 50,000 for the fireworks each night. But can you imagine that? Yeah, I just want people to feel what we feel. Yeah, that's right. I think that's the main thing is not having a no attitude is bad. You know, if people have got a bad attitude, we can try and change that, can't we? But if they don't care at all, it's kind of, we've got to keep working on that. Because, like you say, the future of Plymouth depends on it, in my view. If we don't get this right, there's a lot at stake, Right. And having, like, a university that does environmental science, the reason I came to Plymouth in the first place, you want that to matter, don't you? You want that to matter. You want people to understand that water is sacrosanct and it was there before we came along and it will be there long after we depart. But, you know, what is important is that people understand the connection between them and the water. It's good for the well-being to be next to the water. It's even better for your well-being to know that you've helped to make it as clean and as pristine as it could possibly be because you feel you're a stakeholder then. You feel you're part of the journey, you know. Mm. So, you know, without getting all sentimental on it, there's hard business reasons for doing it, but the most important reasons for doing it is for the environment and for your own peace of mind. And that's why this project's going to be a success. Got a lot of faith in the young people, got a lot of faith in the kids that come through school at the moment, that they'll be our ambassadors for this project for generations to come, right? So that's what's exciting about this, the opportunity to have real culture change about the environment through the National Marine Park. Tudor, thank you very much. You've been listening to Sounds Amazing from Plymouth Sound National Marine Park. For more information about the topics covered in this podcast, or to leave questions or feedback, visit PlymouthSoundNationalMarinePark.com. Follow us on X, Facebook and Instagram at PlymSoundNMP. Sounds Amazing is presented by Elaine Hayes. The series producer is Sarah Lloyd. Digital marketing by Brett Lockwood. Edited by Martin Burgess-Moon. Engineered by Mark Stevenson. And the producer was Paul Philpot. A Fresh Air Studios production for Plymouth Sound National Marine Park and Plymouth City Council. Copyright Plymouth City Council. Plymouth City Council.